Amen. It's good to worship with you today. I have a, I'm going to fill y'all in on a little something. We are, I'm regularly trying to figure out ways to become a better preacher and to communicate the Word of God in a more effective way, to be more streamlined in my studies, and, and you know, that gives me more time to do pastoral things. And so there's a new tool that we have now <clears throat> that is in the, the Logos Bible software I've been using. I've, I've got the other staff kind of on it, and we can, I can build the sermon instead of putting it in an outline somewhere else on Word or another document. I can put it on there. And then I can go into my iPad and I can hit preaching mode and it has the text and it has my points and all of that. It's really cool. And so I'm going to try that today. Now, I still have my backup because I, I don't completely trust it yet. Uh, you know, I started using the iPad uh, several years back to, to put the on because I got to a point where I was either going to have to wear reading glasses or have letters that were about this big in my Bible. And uh, I, I got tired of trying to do this with my glasses. Now, there is one feature in preaching mode on the iPad outline that I'm not going to use yet. There's a little button up there that's a timer. <laughs> and I can, I can push that timer, and apparently I can set it so that, you know, when I have five minutes left, it's flashing at me. And I, I haven't tried it. I don't think the iPad blows up or it turns off or anything like that but I'm not willing to try the timer yet. So I'm just gonna let the Holy Spirit uh, lead us in that, in that way and be our timer. Did any of you, are you familiar with the idea or the term the little dog syndrome or the small dog syndrome? Any of y'all have small dogs? What is the small dog syndrome? Yeah, they, they have to make up for their size by yapping or nipping. Uh, they, they, they have to, you know, they, they have to act like they're a big dog because they're this tiny, you know, tiny little dogs always, you know, it's like they got to put on, uh, put on a show. Now, that is a, uh, there's a truism that I see in the animal kingdom. Now, many of y'all know that I'm a, I'm a hunter and the last several years, especially after dad passed away, I've had the, the opportunity to spend some time with my brothers doing a lot more hunting than what I've done in the past. And I, I've enjoyed that. But this last year for it, I didn't even harvest a buck. I spent a couple hundred hours watching them and videoing and taking photos. And uh, we had enough meat in the freezer at the time. And, and so uh, one of the things that I, I, I've enjoyed watching is how these deer interact with each other. And especially young bucks, they have that, that attitude about them. And you'll see them when they get close to one another, they'll start puffing their chest out and they'll start posturing walking around each other and uh, every once in a while you'll see them go at it i've got video of uh, one bug just throwing another one on its back and pushing it for 20 30 yards it's really interesting to watch because generally when the real big buck walks in all the rest of them just kind of move off to the edges he doesn't have to go uh you know he may antlers up on a tree or something like that but he doesn't have to go fight the other ones because he is the king and they know it uh, he doesn't have to act up we saw something similar in 2009 Susan when we had the privilege to take that camping trip to Alaska on the way back in the farthest southern it's a little incorporated city way down on the tail of Alaska south of Juneau there's a little town called Hyder Alaska just to, you cross over from British Columbia and you you 
go into Hyder, and then you go just a few miles north, and there's a viewing platform that the National Forest Service has built there to watch bears come up during the salmon run. And it's, it's on a place called Fish Creek. <laughs> and we're sitting there watching, and when we first got out of our car, we had to, or the truck, we had to, I guess we were in her expedition, we had to get back in because there was a mama bear and a couple cubs coming down the road. And uh, so we get back in, we wait for them to pass, and we get out, go to the viewing platform, and we, we watch, you know, several bears, really nice, good-sized brown bears. And we're watching one down there fishing, trying to catch fish, and all of a sudden, that bear looks over its shoulder, and it just takes off running up the creek just as fast as it could run. And we didn't know what happened. Had somebody gone down there? What spooked that bear? Well, it didn't take long to figure it out because here came Granddad Bear. This thing was massive, uh, and we got to watch it catch salmon, and, and it was a very impressive bear. That bear didn't have to threaten the other bears. He just was. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was, and everybody else knew it, and they didn't want anything to do with him. They just left him alone. When we are confident in who we are, we don't have to walk around with a puffed-up chest. Somebody that is truly a person of humility doesn't have to go around telling people how humble they are. If you'll notice people that are of, they don't have to go around telling everybody how loving they are. Folks, no. In the passage that we read today, which I think is, is a pretty good parallel passage, but we're gonna be, I'm going to be preaching from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. And this, this speaks of Christ who is our example. Now, in our liturgy, as Matthew likes to use those big churchy words, uh, that this morning we had, uh, it, it was built off of Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, there's a beautiful uh, reference to the fact that Christ, though he is God, and though he was God when he was on the face of this earth, did not have to hold on to his deity. In fact, uh, the New, New American Standard Version says he did not consider it something to be grasped, something to be held on to. He didn't have to walk around telling everybody and showing everybody that he was God because he really was. When he was on earth, he was God on earth. So he didn't have to walk around puffed up. And in that passage in Philippians chapter 2, it's in the context who humbly submitted and lived a life of submission, even to the point that he submitted to the cross and died for us. Well, that pro provides a, an incredible background for us because as we've looked at, at 1 Peter, Peter has, has laid out this incredible, glorious, beautiful picture of the gospel for us and who Christ is. And then he tells us, based on, on what Christ has done for you, you, that ought to impact how you act and how you treat one another. Last week, we begin to get into this difficult section of 1 Peter where Peter deals with the proper position of a, of a Christian's heart or a Christian's life is to live a life of submission to authority, submission to one another. We tend to not like that idea. We, we, we don't like the idea that we're called to surrender or submit, but ultimately when we are confident of who we are in Christ, we can live in deference to one another in this temporary world because we know that in Christ we have a standing in another world. 
That's why Peter says at the first part of chapter two that we are aliens in this world. We're sojourners in this world. And yet it is hard for us to submit to what might seem unfair, to humble ourselves, to walk and live a life of humility. And so last week he, he tells us to submit to the government. That, that rubs a lot of us raw. We don't want to submit to the government. The government's wrong, you know. But he tells us that, that as Christians, we all not have a heart of rebellion, but we need to have a heart of submission. And then he even dealt with how we relate to our employers, how employees are to relate to employers, even unjust employers, even cruel employers. Well, today he gets to the pinnacle of that message. So he's built up to it coming from this direction. He's going to, next week, we're going to deal with how husbands and wives ought to treat each other in, in relation to it. But here at the pinnacle, he said, here's why. Because this is what Jesus did. And if you're going to call yourself a follower of Christ, you're going to do what Jesus did. Read with me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. It'll be up on the screen as well. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you now have, or you have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. So when Peter begins this text, it is tied to, in fact, some pastors I've noticed in some commentaries tie it directly to verses 18 through verse 20, where we're called, where Peter says, submit to, the, to, to your uh, master, submit to your employers and employee relationship and that household slave relationship that we talked about last week. What are we called to there in, in verse 21? We are called to this. We're called to a life of submission and a heart that is characterized by humility. Why are we called to that? because Christ suffered for us. Let me kind of put the bottom line out there right up front. You will never suffer to the extent, for anybody else, you'll never sacrifice for anybody else to the extent that Christ suffered and sacrificed for you. And if Christ had not suffered and sacrificed for me, I would be a man without hope today. I'd have no hope of anything beyond this world. I'm mid-50s. God blesses me. I've got 30 years left on this earth. 30 years to, to, to do whatever it is that, that, that God has for me to do. If that's all I had, 30 years in comparison to eternity is nothing. I'd be a hopeless man. I would be a man who, who would be without hope of ever seeing his daughter again, Katie. I'd be a man without hope of ever seeing my parents again. Without Christ, I would be absolutely hopeless. But because Christ suffered for me, I have a living hope, as Peter 
said when he launched this letter. My hope, my future is rooted in the fact that Christ was willing to suffer for me. Peter says, in light of that, if you're going to call yourself a disciple, a follower of Christ, guess what you have to be willing to do? You have to be willing to set aside your preferences, your wants, your desires, and submit to the King of Kings, the Lord of the universe, the one who really is all that, the one who really is God, you ought to be willing and ready to submit to him in whatever he's called you to do. And so the first thing Peter does here in this text is he calls us to follow. You were called to this because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. We are called as believers to be followers of Jesus Christ, have the same mindset that Christ had, have the same heart for the lost that Christ had for the lost, to have the same willingness to submit to those around us, which is the true essence of love. True love does not say, hey, this is what I want, you have to give it to me. True love says, what is it that I can do to meet your needs? That's, that's what I'm, I'm doing pre-marriage counseling with two couples right now, and that's, that's really the core of it. That's the essence. If you want to have a, a healthy, vibrant message, husbands, make it your goal to figure out what your wife desires, needs, what makes her happy, and fulfill those needs. Wives, do the same thing. And if you'll do that from a heart of submission and surrender, you will find a marriage that is fulfilling. That's the heart of love that, that Christ had for every single one of us. And if we are going to be disciples, the essence of discipleship is following Christ. I wonder, I just wonder, if when Peter wrote those words right there, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps, he remembered two things. The first one was when Peter, I mean, when Jesus first got in Peter's boat, First time he's in the boat with Peter, and they, they push out from the shore, and Peter begins to preach. I mean, Jesus, well, first, Jesus collects all of those fish. He begins to preach. Peter surrenders to him and says, oh, you know, I, I, I don't belong in your presence. And Jesus calls him to be, he says, hey, you'll no longer be a fisherman. You're going to be a fisher of men. And he told Peter, come, follow me. And Peter left the boats behind, and Peter and Andrew and their, their cousins, John and James, left their fishing equipment, left their lives, and followed Jesus. They did that for a period of time until Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. He appeared to Peter and John a couple times after that, but Peter and John had gone back fishing. And we talked about this back in July. They're fishing one, one day because they just didn't know what else to do. They went back to fishing. And they look up on the shore, and there's a guy on the shore that says, hey, throw the nets over on the other side of the boat. And basically, like, we fished all night long. We hadn't caught a single fish, but they throw the nets on the other side of the boat. The nets are filled with fish again, and they, they think, that's got to be Jesus. They come back to shore. You remember the scene. I preached a whole sermon on it. Jesus restores Peter. 
And then he tells Peter, Peter, I want you to get up and do what? Follow me. Follow me. The essence of discipleship is to follow Christ. We overcomplicate it far too often. We come up with all kinds of rules and regulations and, you know, what's it mean to be a Christian? What's it mean to be a Baptist? What's it mean to be this? Or what's it mean to be that? What's it mean to be a good citizen? How about we make it our first and primary goal to follow him? Now, to follow him, we got to sit under his feet. To follow him, we got to read his word so that we know what it is he's calling us to do. But ultimately, Christianity, though it may be hard, it's not that complicated. The true essence of discipleship is to be a disciple, be a learner, and follow the master. So Peter here says, in submission, in the kind of heart you ought to have toward your employer, the kind of heart that you ought to have he's going to get to next week, toward your spouse, the kind of heart that you ought to have toward your government, is the kind of heart that Jesus had toward other people and toward the government. A heart of submission. Follow him. He is our example. Even in suffering, Jesus is our example. What about when it's not fair? I think he was a pretty good example of how to suffer when it's not fair. What about when I'm not treated right? He's a pretty good example of how to suffer when you're being treated unkindly or unjustly. Follow Jesus. Second, it's a call to surrender. You see a couple things here fleshed out in this text. In, in, the, in verse 21, he says, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. As you, that text, that in most of your Bibles, that'll be in bold or italics or something like that. There might even be a footnote indicating where that came from. In fact, there, throughout this little section, there are a couple places or a couple quotes that Peter gives us from an Old Testament passage. That Old Testament passage is the messianic promise or prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53. I want to read a portion of that so that you see the context. Isaiah wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And Peter, now that Christ is risen, and Peter's going back reading his Bible, and he's reading his Old Testament, he's reading Isaiah, and he goes, that's Jesus. So read with me, or follow along, Isaiah 53. The scripture says, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He did not, didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains. And when we turn regarding him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, he was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of all of us. 
He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers. He did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considers his, considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he has done no violence and he had spoken, had not spoken deceitfully. Peter uses that passage as his text, his sermon text, so to speak, as he's teaching us about who Jesus is to us and how we ought to follow Christ with a heart of submission and surrender. And you see several references here. You see even other prophecies in that Isaiah 53 text, the, the prophecy about Jesus being married in a rich man's tomb, you find right there in Isaiah 53. And, and so you have this prediction of Christ from Isaiah the prophet that Peter is looking back to. And he says, you know, Jesus is that guy. We're to follow him and we're to submit to him and we're to surrender even when we're treated unfairly as Christ surrendered. There's two specific things that you'll note here. The first one is this, Christ responded to insults with grace. Jesus responded to insults without insulting in return. Now, there's a curious texture. When he quotes from Isaiah 53, he says, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. If you take that first section, I, in fact, I was tempted to do this and make another point in the message, honestly, and, and to pull that, me, that, that section out where he says, he did not commit sin or no deceit was found in his mouth and stand here and, and declare the truth, and it is true that Jesus did not sin. He was perfect, he was sinless, and so to follow Christ, we have to walk in holiness and obedience to Christ. Now, the reason that I did not make that a whole nother point is because that's not Peter's point. Peter's point is that even though Jesus was sinless and did not sin, he was still treated unjustly. Peter's not making the overall point here that Jesus was perfect and sinless, which Jesus was perfect and sinless, okay? That's true. And, and, and you can go to other texts if you want to preach that and make that point. He's declaring the fact that Jesus was sinless. And even in Isaiah, the point that Isaiah was making was that a guy who was committed no sin and had no deceit found in his mouth even did so when he was insulted and treated unjustly. So how did Jesus respond to unfair and unjust treatment? He responded with grace. He responded graciously, even toward those who would harm him, toward those who would hurt him. Wayne Grudem is a, a modern day author he, who has written dozens of books at this point. He, here he makes this point. He says, God is pleased when his people trust him in the midst of unjust suffering because we're imitating the example of Christ. God's pleased when we act like Jesus, when we trust the Father in the midst of unjust suffering. In fact, Peter expands on that point when he says, how did, and basically he's explaining how Jesus did it. Jesus did it by entrusting himself to the Father. 
what's going on in my life right now may not be fair. And I might not can trust my employer, or I might not could trust this person who's treating me bad, but God's still in charge. He's still God, and I can trust him. I can always trust him. When life seems unfair, I can look to the cross and know that God loves me, God cares about me, and he is trustworthy. And I can continue to, to submit to his will and to follow him, regardless of what happens to me in this world, because I can entrust myself to God. He has earned it. He's worthy, and he's big enough to take it on his shoulders. He responded, Jesus responded to insults with grace. He also responded to unjust suffering with mercy. He did not give them what they deserved. <laughs> I grew up, uh, you know, singing a lot of the, the old quartet music. We sang some of it in Leander First Baptist Church. Uh, but when I got to May, that ramped up. May, actually, for Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, we used this little orange book that was called the Heavenly Highway Hymnal that every song in there had shape notes in it, okay? And one of the songs that was in, I don't remember if this one was in the Heavenly Highway Hymnal, but it, it might have been in the Songs of Inspiration book that we also used, was a, was a song about Jesus at the cross. And some of you old folks will remember it as soon as I, I say the first words. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. There at the cross, he was God. When, when, when those priests who were so full of themselves were spitting on him, he was still God. When they were jerking his beard out, he was no less God at that moment than he was when he rose up out of the grave. He was God. He was God when they were driving the nails in his wrist. He was God when they were mocking him, putting a, a purple robe around him and, and bowing down saying, hail to the king. He was God when they were tying him to the whipping post and ripping the flesh off of his back. He was still God. And because he was God, at the command of his voice were all of the powers of the universe the powers of creation, the powers of destruction, the powers of life and death. He could have called down 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set himself free. He could have tempered it. He could have called down one angel to strike the man with the cat of nine tails that was beating him at that moment. None of us would have, uh, would have faulted him for striking the lips, causing to go mute one of the smart aleck priests who was false accusing him. None of us would have faulted him for that. He was God in that moment just like he was God when he created the earth, just like he was God when he came up out of the grave. But in his humility, he chose not to strike back. 
I don't know that there's a single one of us here that could have done that. If so, I would, I would argue it's only by the power of his spirit that we would be able to, to do it. But think, think about that for just a moment. The power that spoke the world into existence was completely at his disposal at that moment. It was put on display a few days later when he rose up out of the grave, victorious over death, walked out of that tomb alive, still had the wounds in his hands, but he's walking around eating, sitting down eating fish, cooking a meal. He, he put that power on display in the appropriate time. And there was an appropriate time for him to come up out of the grave victorious over death. But in that moment of insult and derision and pain and suffering, when all of the sins from all of history, my sin, your sin, all of our sins were being placed on his shoulders, he simply responded with submission, with mercy, and with grace. I'm glad. I'm grateful. It reminds me that that same Jesus today, when he sees my sin, still loves me and still responds with mercy and grace. He's not sitting on the right hand of the throne of God with a lightning bolt just waiting for me to mess something up. In fact, when he called me to be a pastor, he already knew I was going to mess up more than once. And he still called me. When his, he sent his spirit to the, to the heart of a 12-year-old boy to woo me to himself that I might confess him as my Lord and Savior and follow him in baptism, he knew that I wasn't going to live out a perfect life. And he still wanted me to come into his family. He still adopted me to be one of his sons. That heart is the heart that he's asking us to have toward one another. Why do we live a life of a surrendered heart, a submissive spirit? Peter says, because Jesus did, and he's our example. Well, what if they... How would Jesus respond? He is our example, and Peter goes on and he fleshes this out in the next few verses. And Peter just kind of goes into this stream of who Christ is and what Christ did for us. Now, couch this under the background, under the backdrop of this. You were still a sinner when Jesus did this for you. You were still in rebellion when Christ did this for you. You were still a hater of God when Christ did this for you. And so Peter then says in the last couple of verses of this text, he himself bore our sins on his body on the tree. This next section, these last couple of verses magnify Christ the Redeemer. 
And so what he's doing at this point, it's as though Peter's saying, look, Jesus is your example. He, he responded to insults with grace and mercy. He responded to foul treatment, unjust treatment with grace and mercy. And you ought to do that. But here's Jesus. Here is Jesus. And this lays the foundation for how we follow him. Here's Jesus. Jesus took your sin and my sin on his shoulders and paid the penalty for our sin. He didn't have to. He, he paid a price he did not owe, right? I owe a price that I cannot pay. That old chorus I sang when I was in youth group, I needed someone to take my sin away. Jesus took my sin, suffered and died on the cross and paid the penalty for my sin that I might have hope and be able to stand before a holy God. Somebody had to pay the price for my adoption. Someone had to pay the penalty for my sin. And because I'm not sinless and I'm not perfect, I couldn't do it. Jesus bore our sins on his shoulders on that tree. Peter says, when Jesus went to the cross, he was carrying our sins and paying the penalty for our sin. And he did it so that we might live. So that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. Because he died, I can live. Because he paid the penalty of death for my sins, I can live life free from that penalty. Because of the life that I have in Christ, not because of my righteousness, not because of my goodness, but because he was perfect and he paid the price for my sin, I will never die. Jesus said, those who live and believe in me will never die. We'll move We'll leave this body if we're still here when Christ returns. My spirit will leave this body. The body will stay here and my spirit will enter into the presence of a holy, loving God, the one who gave his life for me. I won't die. Now, if I happen to be one of the, the, the joy-filled few on those last days when Christ returns, this body won't even die. It'll just be changed. I'll be caught up in the air with him and those who have gone before me and this body will be transformed into a new body that'll never grow sick and never grow old. But in either case, because Christ paid the penalty for my sin, he, he died in my place, I will never die. What relief and what joy we have in that. Those who know Christ as their Lord and Savior We'll never face death. We'll just face a transition. Instead of going into a grave and having the stone rolled across it, we'll walk into a tunnel and come out the other side because he's kicked the back door out of the grave. There is no death for the believer. He bore our sins and he died that we might live. And he died that we might live in his righteousness. 
He, he's imputed his righteousness upon us. Paul says, it's not that I'm righteous, but in Christ I'm made righteous before the eyes of God because I'm clothed with the blood of Christ. My sins are paid for. Those that I've already committed, those that I, I commit today, and those I'll commit in the future, they're paid for by the blood of Christ. My future is eternally secure because of what Christ did on the cross for me. He healed our spirits. Now, the words that, are, that he uses here uh, are direct from Isaiah. By his wounds, you have been healed. That is one of the most misused verses by the health and wealth gospel. Because when you look at it in context, it does not promise that you'll never get sick and you'll never die because every sickness is going to be healed. If every sickness was healed physically by the wounds of Christ on the cross, I'd be sitting down having lunch with Paul today. There'd be a lot of 2,000-year-old Christians walking around on this earth. That passage does not mean that your physical body won't grow sick or those wounds are always going to be healed. What it means is that he's done something in your soul and he's healed your soul. Your spirit is made alive in him. Your spirit will be resurrected because it's alive in Christ. He has healed you. It was his stripes. It was his wounds. It was his beating that's given you eternal life that has healed our spirits. He will heal that's every one of those spirits who put their faith and trust in him, and he will be the shepherd and overseer of our souls. I love this shepherding language. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 48 when God says that I was a shepherd unto Abraham and Isaac. That language first appears in, in, back in Genesis 48 and 49, and of course we're all familiar with, with, with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, I like the way the CSB translates. I know we all memorized it in the King James Version. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But the essence of that text is this. The Lord is my shepherd, I have all I need. And that's how the Christian Standard Bible translates that. Because God is my shepherd, I have all that I need. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He is a shepherd. He is, a, he is the guide. He is the leader. And in Christ, I have a shepherd, an overseer, a guardian of my soul. He protects, he watches over, he leads, and he guides. He is my redeemer from the moment of salvation, from the moment of atonement and redemption on the cross, all the way through the finish. He will carry me there. Back in 2004, I uh, knew that Katie was coming close to the end of her life. For those of you that don't know our story, Katie was our 14-year-old daughter at that time. She'd had a long struggle in life. She'd had some great years. She'd had her mama's kidney, a kidney transplant. But we knew in 2004 that her time was short. And I remember uh, going to a Promise Keepers conference with... Uh, uh, the guy that was then our youth pastor, Greg Gillis. And uh, at this conference, there was a, a Promise Keepers conference for that men's conference. And there was a lot of testosterone, a lot, you know, you were, they, were, they were preaching about be the man that God's called you to be and step up and do what it is God's called you to do. And, and one of the illustrations that, that stuck so clearly in my head was this picture of Rick and Dick Hoyt. It was a 
Rick Hoyt was a young man who had cerebral palsy. He learned to type with uh, his eyes on a little computer. And his dad was a retired uh, Marine. And there came a point when Rick, as a uh, as young man, I think he was probably in his uh, mid to late 20s at that point, he told his dad that he wanted to, to run a 5K or compete in a 5K. Well, his dad wasn't in very good shape. Uh, his dad was in his 50s, and he, had, he, you know, he hadn't run much since he'd been in the military. And so, but he promised him he would do it. And so the first 5K they ran, they finished either dead last or second to last. But he pushed his son across that finish line. And when they came across the finish line, you saw the, the joy and the elation on Rick's face. That they had, it's like they had won the whole race. After that, they began to train. Till Dick and Rick Hoyt literally finished several Ironman triathlons. He would put his son in a rowboat for the swimming part of the competition. And I'm, I'm trying to remember, I think they had to swim seven miles in the actual Ironman in Hawaii. He put his son in a, in a raft and, and swim those miles out into the ocean and back, pulling that raft behind him. Then he would, when he'd get to shore, he would pick his son up and carry his son and put him on his bicycle up and by the handlebar so, so uh, Rick could be up front. And, and this, this full-grown man, okay, Rick's a, you know, in his 30s, probably at this point, he'd put him on the handlebars of, of his uh, bike and ride the 100 miles in the Hawaiian volcanic mountains. Then he would come back and he would physically pick his son up, take him off the front of that bicycle and put him in the wheelchair and run the marathon with him. And every time there would be people lining in the streets cheering as, as he pushed his son across that finish line. And I remember after seeing that, Greg and I were, we're talking about we had left Promise Keepers. We were on the drive back from Lubbock. The Promise Keepers we went to was in Lubbock that year. I told him, I said, the Lord's made it very clear to me. Regardless of whatever else goes on, as Katie's dad, my job is going to be to carry her across the finish line. So my prayer was that whatever I needed to do, I could do a good job of carrying her across that finish line. Now, I was simply just, at that point, and maybe I didn't even know it, following the example of Christ. Because Christ, who began this journey with you, who began this race by dying for your sins and adopting you into his family, promises here that he's going to carry you across the finish line. He is the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. Are you and I going to fail him somewhere along the way as a believer? Yeah. We're going to fail him. But it's not going to make him any less our heavenly father. He still has promised for those who are his children, he's going to carry you across that finish line. Sometimes you're going to grow tired and weary 
you're going to feel sunburnt. And boy, we felt that the last week. I feel like I've been baking for the last month. But the promise is that he's the shepherd and guardian who will carry us across the finish line. And we can trust him to do that. Why ought we live life following Christ? Because he's worth it. He did it for us. He's given us the example, and he's going to finish the race for us. He'll carry us across. I, I think of Peter and Andrew and, and Philip and those guys in those last days when in John 14 they were asking, you know, Jesus was, they were getting all upset. And Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And, and Thomas says, well, and, and he says that where I am there, you may be also. And Thomas says, well, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And let me sum it up. Basically, Jesus said, Thomas, you don't have to know everything. You just have to know me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'll get you there. I'll carry you across if you just trust me. And many of y'all know this story. As Katie began to get ill, when we, we were having this discussion, I asked her, I said, hey, I say ill, as she was nearing the last few months of her life. She, you know, I asked her that question, Katie, are you going to be okay? And she said, yeah, I'm going to be fine. I'm, I'm worried about you and mom. And, and uh, the short part of that story, for those of you who haven't heard it, some of you have heard this, Katie said, uh, I asked her, I said, Katie, well, how, how do you know that you're going to be fine? And I said, some people, you know, think that they see a light. Some think an angel comes and get them. And she says, because Jesus said he's going to come get me. He's going to take me home. I said, well, how do you know for sure it's Jesus is going to come get you? And she said, because of that passage you preach in John 14 all the time, Jesus says, I'll come again and receive you to myself. He is the shepherd and guardian of your soul children of God yeah he's king yeah he has all the power of creation in his voice he could destroy this earth and start a new one tomorrow and there's going to come a time when he will but for now if you will entrust your soul to him he bore your sins he died so that you can live he'll heal your spirit and he'll carry you across the finish You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.